Hello and welcome back to Fly in the Wall. My name's Justin. And I'm Alec. And we are here for our second week of season three. We've got a fantastic guest on this week. Um, lots to talk about, so we are going to dive right into it. Um, before we do though, as always, we say this every week, Christian or Aaron or someone makes a comment about how you should be doing this already, but follow us on social media, at Fly in the Wall Pod, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Um, subscribe on iTunes, uh, on SoundCloud, and to our weekly newsletter, uh, so you can get Fly on the Wall delivered right to your inbox every Sunday morning. You don't even have to put any work in, I promise. And today on the pod, we'll be talking to Stephen Law, a longtime advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell, and the founder and CEO of American Crossroads and the Senate Leadership Fund, which is a super PAC that works to get Republicans elected to the Senate. Stephen Law is also a geopolitics fellow here this semester. Uh, so if you're on campus, be sure to say hello. He's great. We had a great interview, uh, and we're very excited. Yeah, he'll uh, mention when his uh, discussion groups are going to be, uh, but really exciting stuff. And we get into just a bit about that uh, in our interview. But before we do, um, your favorite part, or at least it's our favorite part, I assume it's your favorite part, um, of season three is our introduction of the segment wheel. In case you weren't listening last week, the segment wheel uh, has a whole bunch of fun different segment options that we are going to be randomly choosing from uh, each week to do on the podcast during our introduction period. So, Alec, let's spin that segment wheel. This is unnecessarily wrong. What do we got? All right. First up, we have got Would You Rather, and the question we're going to answer is Topic, would you rather work on the Hill or work on campaigns? That's an interesting one. Let's see. Having actually a little bit of experience in both, um, I'm going to say work on campaigns. Um, and my reason for that is it's just a very special environment that you honestly could never get anywhere else. Not to discredit working on the Hill, but campaigns are just so fast-paced, so intense, so just like jam-packed in such a short amount of time. Um it is true, I think, to say that you just become a family on a campaign. It's, it's an environment like nothing else. Uh, I enjoyed my brief stint on one last semester, and or sorry, last summer, and definitely encourage anyone who's thinking about it to give it a try. So I have also uh, done both um, at very low levels, of course. But, uh, you know, and while I, I have loved my work on both, I would rather work on the Hill. Oh. Um, I, you know, I really like the policy aspect on the Hill. I think you get a little less of on campaigns. Um, and when, you know, when you're in that environment, seeing, uh, bills pass and senators walking by you every, uh, now and then, like, these are the people who, uh, make the decisions. You're kind of in the room where it happens, uh, on, uh, when you're on the Hill. So yeah, I love them both. I think I take the Hill. And that's very fair. I remember when I interned last spring, um, just like the awe of working in the Capitol is mm -hmm. something that I was never lost in me for the entire, like, three months that I worked there. Remember, like physically, almost physically bumping into uh, Representative Joe Kennedy once or twice, coming out of an elevator, um, yeah. which is terrifying, but also just so cool and something you don't get anywhere else. All right, should we spin the wheel again? Let's spin the wheel again. All right. You see what this is my favorite segment this year. <laughs> All right. And next up, we are going to be doing Grind Our Gears, which is oh, a fly-on-the-wall classic, hashtag of course. Hashtag throwback. Yeah. All right, <laughs> so topic for Grinding Our Gears is the State of the Union. Oh, Grind Our Gears is the State of the Union. Let's see. I Okay, now this one's actually easy. Um, because I do love the State of the Union. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for a president to lay out his or her priorities for the year. Um, really have some impact, too. But 
what grinds my gears about it is the stupid partisan like game playing that is everyone in the audience like and it always overanalyzed too it's like who stood up and clapped when and who gave a standing ovation and it almost turns into especially now i remember watching the last few of like more focus on what democrats and or republicans were doing and clapping and who was making faces in the audience and stuff like that than what the president's actually saying because it really is an important speech the most important that he or she gives in a year um, and I think we're starting to lose some of the essence of that. I totally agree with that. Um, I'm going to have my own in a second, but just like when people are analyzing like, oh, he wore a blue tie, he wore a purple tie. And like, like who cares? Give it a rest. Or what face Joe Biden's making behind the podium. Or right. Like that. Um, That's a fun part. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, what grinds my gears about the State of the Union is actually not anything about the speech itself. It's about the State of the Union response. Oh. And State of the Union responses, right? Um, so every year after the president gives his speech, basically everyone who disagrees with the president, um, so this year the Democrats, are going to give a response, and this year it's going to be uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy, actually. Um, now, what grinds my gears about the State of the Union response specifically is that it's pre-scripted, so it's actually not a response, it's just like kind of a different perspective on the State of the Union, and it always just feels awkward. Um, so that's one thing that grinds my gears about the response. The other thing, the other thing that grinds my gears about the response is at least for the last few years, it's kind of where political careers have gone to die. Um, so, for example, Michelle Bachman gave the Tea Party response one year. It was like looking somewhere that wasn't quite the camera. It was like just a little bit up and to the left from the camera. Marco Rubio had the infamous water bottle debacle oh, um, <laughs> on the State of the Union response. Uh, Bobby Jindal, when he was an up-and-comer in the Republican Party, gave the State of the Union response and kind of fell off the map from there. So, um, you know, I pity... Uh, anyone who has to give the State of the Union uh, response. So, you know, we'll see what happens with Joe Kennedy after uh, Tuesday night. That's very fair. We should do that on Tuesday. Tweet out our uh, our favorite videos of State of the Union responses. Right. We'll get happy on that. Yeah. We'll find some of that. Um, all right. Fantastic. Uh, moving right along. Uh, we entered this last week. We want to give you a refresher um, on our political picks. So this is another new segment we're doing for season three. How it works. We picked the first lightning round question. Um, during our interview as a special question where we ask the guests um, any kind of sort of trivia. Uh, and then each of your flying wall team members guesses what he or she is going to pick as the answer. So this week's political pick question was, who is the most vulnerable Senate Democrat up for re-election in 2018? We asked Stephen. You'll get to hear his answer, um, and we'll give you the results in the outro. All right. So uh, speaking of incumbent Senate Democrats, we know someone who knows a thing or two about that. Uh, that as true. the uh, founder and CEO of the Senate Leadership Fund, obviously, Stephen Law has uh, quite a few insights into what Democrats, Republicans will be targeting um, in the midterms this year. Uh, so we're very excited to have uh, him on the pod. So let's move right into the interview. Stephen Law, everyone. Stephen Law, thank you so much. We're happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've had a long and colorful career on the Hill um, in Republican leadership, stuff like that. So we're excited to get into it with you. Um, to start off, a little bit about how you got here. You've worked as a close aide to Mitch McConnell, obviously, for a long part of your professional career. Um, so tell us about those early couple days when you started out working for him as a policy advisor on the Hill. Well, sure. In fact, uh, maybe even back it up a little bit before uh, when I graduated from law school and uh, 
had a very general idea that I wanted to come work in Washington. I didn't know anybody uh, and uh, I didn't have any contacts. Uh, and so I just really came down and started uh, walking door to door, uh, handing out resumes. Uh, and it was a kind of a tough and occasionally demeaning experience, but it was also Imagine. sort of an adventure. And uh, my first job actually was as an unpaid intern to a uh, former senator from New York named Al D'Amato, whom they used to call Senator Pothole because he was very <laughs> focused on road repairs. I mean, the most minute and practical aspects of governance. But but for a while, people really, uh, really admired that about him. But my first paid job when someone would actually write me a check to show up for work was with uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. And I was... Uh, Really a, a low-level legislative assistant. I was the uh, the low man on the totem pole. I had the smallest desk in the most crowded office. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of rolled up my sleeves and, and went to work. I was just so excited to be there and, and just did whatever I could. Yeah, and you mentioned your work is in L.A. And one issue that you uh, specifically advised him on and that he had a lot of influence over, too, um, was campaign finance, which is a battle that he won uh, back in the 80s. So take us inside the room a little bit about that and the and how the fight went down in the 80s. Who were you guys talking to and uh, and what happened? Yeah, there was a really interesting time and it was an early uh, revelation of uh, Senator McConnell's uh, skills as a politician and his ability to, to work inside of a caucus to uh, to gather support for his position and then finally to become a leader on the issue. Uh, uh, campaign finance reform uh, developed a real uh, head of steam in the in the uh, latter uh, 1980s. There was a bill called S3 that became famous at the time, and it was uh, championed by a former senator from the state of Oklahoma, a senator named Dan Boren. And uh, it, it all of a sudden had a tremendous amount of momentum. And uh, Senator McConnell uh, was uh, part of his views were uh, in, uh, informed by uh, his own experience as a politician in Kentucky where at the time uh, it was a very democratic state. It was hard for Republicans to compete. Uh, the state party apparatus was not very strong, and he felt it was very important uh, for candidates to be able to have the resources they needed to be able to compete and to overcome a lot of just natural disadvantages that Republican had in the state, that Republicans had in the state. And so he um, saw the importance of the issue, felt it was important for uh, candidates uh, as a matter of constitutional First Amendment right to be able to raise the resources they needed to uh, to to spend, but at the time there was kind of a, there was I would say sort of a lassitude inside the Republican caucus in the Senate about what to do about it and whether we should just you know cut a deal and let it pass. Uh, there was no real strong leadership position, let alone a strategy. And uh, McConnell kind of maneuvered himself to become the the leading person on the issue, even though he was not uh, on the committee of jurisdiction, uh, even though he was a, a fairly junior senator at the time. And he did it by building relationships. Uh, he found a few people who shared his point of view. Uh, he got them to uh, put their trust in, in him. And uh, slowly but surely, he maneuvered himself to be uh, the leader of the opposition uh, on an issue that most people kind of just didn't want to take on. So take us a bit behind the scenes there um, and get into more of what was your work like? So being the L.A. who was more or less kind of in charge of these issues and you see, you know, Senator McConnell's like, I feel really strongly about this. I think we can do a lot of good here. You're my guy. You need to make sure this happens. How does that work? You know, what what does your day to day look like in sort of that kind of spotlight? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, S Senator McConnell is uh, one of those unique individuals in the Senate because he used to be a Senate staffer. And so 
Uh, he had a great sense of how to deploy staff, uh, the, the limits of what we could do, the, the importance to give direction. You know, I think some senators are, I've, I've heard, just kind of bark out orders from their office mm-hmm. and, and uh, they don't really think about how it gets done. And, and uh, Senator McConnell has struck me as always having a very practical sense of this is what I need done. Here's the direction I need to provide. There's a lot of clarity. So we had an extremely close and collaborative relationship through that. And, and um, you know, he needed a lot of research done. One of the, the talking points that we used was that as much as people think you spend a lot of money on politics, it's actually quite a lot less than what people spend advertising pet food, oh, yeah. you know, uh, deodorant, yeah. uh, cosmetics. <laughs> and so there was a lot of uh, kind of baseline research chasing down uh, figures and, st- and stats. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, one of the ways that Senator McConnell started to build uh, essentially a campaign within the caucus for, for leading the issue was to communicate with his fellow members in very clear ways. And so a lot of what I did was write letters to uh, the, the Republican caucus uh, outlining the position. We, we drafted our own legislation. In fact, one thing that was kind of a fun experience was, was uh, sitting down with another Senate staffer, somebody much more experienced than I was, and we wrote out the basics of a piece of legislation in pencil <clears throat> on a pad of paper while we were sitting on the Senate floor. And, uh, <laughs> Just was, fun. Yeah, right. And, and I thought, uh, this is absolutely crazy because I've been here probably for all of less than a year, and here we are writing legislation that impacts major issues. And so we developed basically an alternative piece of legislation uh, so that you, you weren't just going to be against this other bill that we right. didn't like, there was something you could be for. We felt that was an important part of it. So so drafting legislation uh, well beyond my uh, years and experience uh, was something that we did early on. But a lot of it was just in close collaboration with him, giving him things that, that, that he needed, uh, things he needed to find or research or write, uh, all those different things uh, uh, to, to help him uh, both develop his Get a policy perspective on it, but maybe even more importantly than that, to position himself within the caucus to be able to help lead on that issue. Great. So then taking a little bit of a jump here, uh, recently you founded uh, Crossroads. So talk to us a little bit uh, just about how PACs work and the work you do at Crossroads. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that was a, a really interesting chapter. Um, it, the, uh, the thought about it started in 2009, uh, I, I had the view that uh, the 2010 midterms might go better for the Republicans than the previous two elections had gone. Uh, just really sort of a hunch more than anything else. And uh, at some point, I ended up uh, talking to somebody else who had that same view, who was Carl Rove, the, the former uh, uh, deputy chief of staff to uh, former President George W. Bush. He had the same view. Uh, he had actually written a column on it. I hadn't, I hadn't read the column, but, but it expressed that same sense that there, there could be some new organization built uh, that would help Republicans' chances uh, in the midterms. And, um, you know, we in the Bush years, uh, the president had done a very good job of fundraising for the, uh, the Republican National Committee. So there was a very, very robust uh, party that could help candidates. Uh, in the years after President Bush stepped down, the Republican Party kind of fell into some disarray. Uh, in fact, at that particular time, it was very, very poorly funded and, in my view, not very well managed. So we felt that there needed to be something other than the party to help um, take on that fight. And uh, as serendipity would have, have it, uh, at the same time, the Supreme Court rendered a decision in the uh, Citizens United case that gave an explicit constitutional imprimatur to uh, what we kind of now call in shorthand as super PACs. And these, this is what these organizations that I run are. Uh, they're uh, organizations uh, that are able to, to raise unlimited amounts from individuals and 
even from corporations. We can't do it from foreign entities, but corporations and individuals can give unlimited amounts uh, to our organizations, and we can spend it on political campaign activity. Uh, the one restriction we have is that we cannot coordinate with candidates, and, and the reason for that is that the Supreme Court, uh, the sort of the, the the judicial framework developed by the Supreme Court going all the way back to 1972 is that contributions are treated, uh, contributions to candidates are treated differently as from contributions to uh, groups like mine. And um, if, if we were to coordinate with a candidate, it would be considered a contribution to that candidate. So therefore, we have to mm -hmm. guess. We have to just <laughs> kind of figure out what we think is impactful and then, and then do that. Right. And so then very behind the scenes, how does a PAC work? Like, you know, you have a Hill office and you got the chief legislative director and legislative staff, but what's like the structure of a PAC and how, you know, how does that work? Well, it varies quite a lot. Uh, and there are lots of super, in fact, when we first started to get involved in when we kind of dreamt about what America Crossroads might be like, uh, we said we, what we don't want to be is kind of a fly-by-night operation, pops up one year, uh, puts a lot of the profits in the consultant's uh, pockets, and then we, uh, you know, kind of go do something else. We wanted an enduring entity that was actually, that could function institutionally, even though uh, fairly small. So a lot of super PACs are the guy who raises the money and the guy who cuts the ads, and they're both consultants, and that's it. And we wanted to build an entity that was a little bit larger, and we're not very large. I mean, we're only a staff of about 15, but, um, right. but we've got a team that, that helps raise resources. And then, and then the much larger team is focused on executing the political program. So it's everything from doing opposition research to uh, uh, crafting the ads, to uh, developing a digital program, to producing voter contact mail. And then in the last couple of cycles, <clears throat> we've also brought on board a chief uh, data officer because uh, how you can uh, develop data, how you can refine it, uh, how you can use it creatively to guide uh, your different tactics is something that now is very much a part of modern campaigning. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Our tweet of the week this week uh, comes courtesy of Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Uh, there's a picture of him sitting in this marble bathtub in the basement of the Capitol building. And the caption is, because it's never on the History Channel, I took a historic tour of the Capitol from 1859 to 1890. These bathtubs were used by members because they didn't have the modern conveniences at home. Chuck Grassley's Twitter account is one of the greatest things of political Twitter. Yeah, it's awesome. Inexplicable sometimes, but absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You've identified a problem. Republicans are kind of lacking the leadership and fundraising right now. You decided you were going to be the person to fill that need. And you have grown it into, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest fundraiser at this point or one of the top you know, political fundraisers at this point. Um, so get a little more into that process. Did you believe you could get there? Like, how, how did you take that step from starting in 2010 to building it into, and we'll get into this, but the Senate Leadership Fund that it is today? Well, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> when we first got going, we, we really weren't certain as to whether or not it would take off. It was a brand new concept. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of donors uh, at the beginning of 2010 were, were still reeling from the disappointments of the 2008 and the 2006 uh, election cycles. And, and you know, do donor enthusiasm <laughs> is something that's important to have if you're going to get something off the ground. So we, we really weren't sure uh, that it would succeed. Uh, so it was a little bit of a, a you know kind of your typical startup risk, um, and and I you know I went into it thinking that it, it may not 
prevail and I'd have to go find something else to do. <laughs> um, and uh, and in, in, in reality, and this is this, there was a couple of articles written about this at the time, our first few months were fairly disappointing in terms of fundraising. Uh, we had one month, I remember, where we raised a grand total of $200. <laughs> and, and then what happened, and this was all, all happened in 2010, all of a sudden it, what crystallized was donors started to realize what we had seen, which was there was a tremendous potential to change the uh, composition of Congress in the in the House for certain and then possibly in the Senate. And uh, so we raised in the space of about 29 weeks, $70 million. It was oh, just a stunning wow. surge of capital that instantly put us on the map. Uh, President uh, Obama uh, attacked us by name. That actually helped our fundraising. Oh, absolutely. If you have the President of the United States going after you, it, it can be helpful. Um, and so... Uh, so that really helped us. And at the end of that year, we, we, we became uh, uh, really sort of synonymous with this kind of activity. And other groups have become uh, uh, significant players as well. <clears throat> a lot of people are familiar with uh, what the, uh, the Koch uh, groups have done, and they, they've been a, a major presence. The U.S. Chamber also has a fairly robust uh, political program. But I think what we've developed over time, and it just simply through perseverance and keeping focused on it, is a, it's a fairly steady program of of building not just our resources. It's, in, in some ways, it's easy to build resources. Mm -hmm. The harder part is to stay true to your mission, uh, to try to constantly innovate, to try to constantly get better at what you're doing, learn from your mistakes because we certainly make them, and um, and then and then make it what we you know hope it, it is today, which is a more enduring uh, platform on on the center right to help. Republican candidates. Right. And so then 2014 was obviously a great year uh, for Republicans across the country. And then after that, Senator McConnell basically gave you a directive to create a fund specifically geared toward the Senate. Um, so talk a little bit about that and how you and how Crossroads has evolved to also include the Senate Leadership Fund. Yeah. Uh, in, in 2014, Republicans took the Senate majority. We uh, tried in 2010 and come up short, tried in 2012, which ended up being a tough election cycle for Republicans. And then in 2014, while we were still American Crossroads, we had an incredible slate of Republican Senate candidates. I mean, I still believe that um, the, the candidate with the best message and the best political skills, the best uh, personality uh, has a leg up, even in a state that's tough and even in an election cycle where the wind is not necessarily in your favor. And in 2014, we had, I think, the best Republican class of senators we've ever had ever ever since I've been in Washington and and we were it was great to, to, to help them win but as we looked at the landscape in 2016 we figured out that we could be a two-year majority uh, a lot of Republicans up in difficult Senate states uh, places like uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Illinois and New Hampshire places where Republicans don't win consistently and so uh, I think Senator McConnell had the vision of uh, something being created that would be analogous to the Republican Governors Association and also a group that's, that had previously been created by uh, Republican leadership, uh, uh, Congressman Boehner, the Congress Congressional Leadership Fund, which was focused in the House. And so that's how the Senate Leadership Fund was was born. And in, in a sense, it's, it's not dramatically different in terms of the structure and, and even the people who were involved. Uh, it's the same basic team. But it's specifically deployed for the Senate, and that becomes something that I think donors understand and relate to very clearly. I care about the Senate. I like Senator McConnell's leadership. I like this majority. Uh, that's a, it's a very clear place uh, where people can invest, as opposed to American mm -hmm. Crossroads, which is a kind of a larger, broader mm -hmm. name, brand, and, and focus that uh, you know maybe for a lot of donors, not as easy to figure out. 
So talk to us a bit more about what your role in the organization is now. I know off the air before we start recording, you referred to your position almost as a coach now um, than a player. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we first started out, uh, there was one employee, and that was me. And then there were <laughs> and then there were there were three, and the other two were really support staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I, I was having to figure out how, how do we raise the money, uh, how are we going to deploy it, and then um, and what's happened over the years. Like I said, we don't have a very large operation; we're barely over a dozen people at any given time. Uh, but we now have a team of people who are <clears throat> exceptionally good at what they do. We've got a great fundraising operation. We have uh, a, a great political team. We have an opposition research uh, research capability that is is I think unique among uh, groups like us. And so uh, it, it's not my role to write the ads. Uh, I guess some people in my political team would disagree with me in that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, my, my role is to, um, to help lead the team, provide overall direction, uh, weed out bad ideas, uh, <clears throat> try to introduce good ideas and strategies overall, and, and then just manage the process to ensure that we're all firing on all cylinders. Uh, you know, one of the challenges... I think that outside groups like ours face, and others have faced this as well, is that you are removed from the heat of the battle. You mm-hmm. don't interact with candidates. You're not on the ground. And it's, it's easy to kind of become institutional and, uh, and just kind of go through the motions. Even if you're trying to do good work, even if you have a dedicated group of people, that, that distance uh, can make you like you're a B-52 flying at 30,000 feet and dropping your ordnance uh, and they're just tiny <laughs> puffs on the ground. You don't relate to it at that right. level. And so I do think it's important uh, as a leader to keep everybody focused on you know the absolute importance of winning, obviously doing it well and uh, and doing it uh, in the in the right spirit. And the other the other thing I would just say uh, briefly that I I think I helped uh, bring to the table. My my previous job was as the general counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And, and you'd think that would be not a terribly relevant experience to what this is, but it actually was very helpful because you know, the chamber is a very well-organized institution. It has a, a very integrated and involved board. There are lots of governance procedures and conflicts of interest policies. And I brought all that to our organization. And again, many of these groups, uh, they, they could be very well run, but they don't have the the infrastructure uh, that, that helps them be well run. And so, you know, I was able to uh, institute a lot of policies, bring on a board that's very involved, very smart. And, and so uh, e- even if I was a bad apple or if we had a bad apple, uh, we've got board and governance policies that would help make sure that uh, there wasn't any financial chicanery or anything like that, but that we'd be able to function well and, um, and avoid those kinds of conflicts that I think sometimes groups in this space uh, find it too easy to, to, to fall into. Right. And so then you mentioned, you know, being kind of removed from the heat of the battle, but obviously solving a huge uh, impact on, on elections. So how do you measure that impact? Like, how do you evaluate your performance as a super PAC? Well, I, you know, one obvious uh, indicator is the win-loss record. Uh, but, but I think that if, if that's all you focus on, you, you're probably going to miss a lot. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, in some ways, you could almost argue that that's a, a sort of a pernicious way to look at it because it, it prevents you from taking risks. You end up only in, uh, investing in sheer, uh, in, 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 in sure wins. Um, I think what we look at is, as we go through the process is, um, you know, race by race, where do we see the impact of our programs, uh, not just TV advertising, which is the most vivid, but uh, the whole range of things that we're doing to try to communicate with voters? Where are we seeing people's uh, opinions change? Uh, are we seeing uh, uh, 
people's ballot positions start to get affected. And, and what's happened is that uh, <clears throat> even though everyone's down on polling, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that the, the polling and, and other indicators uh, give you a, a, a surprisingly vivid real-time picture of how you're impacting uh, what's going on. You can see <clears throat> the subjects of your ads and your messages being played out and what people report back when you ask poll questions or when you conduct uh, focus groups. And so you can have a pretty good sense of whether your overall program is working and, and having an impact. It's still not as, it's, it's not uh, directly precise or immediate, but you can see it over time. And that's where we get a sense for uh, whether we're having an impact or not in, in, in what we're doing. So you talked a little bit about risks there, um, and that's something we want to get into a little more, um, specifically in the 2016 election. Um, so the last one was 2016. Obviously, things were looking a bit iffy for a few Senate Republican campaigns. Um, the Dems had put a lot of money in, like right at the end there, um, and you knew there had to be a response. How did you decide that this was your job as the Senate Leadership Funds? Um, how did you guys contribute to that response? Yeah, it was a fascinating moment. I mean, I... Uh... Uh, one thing that I always admire about uh, my counterparts on the other side is that they are fierce competitors and they don't like to lose and they, they work really hard and they never give up. And um, I, I think that what happened in the last months before the election was that there was a sense that, you know, first of all, that Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. And second of all, that there was a wave building mm -hmm. that would enable Democrats to actually win the Senate majority. Uh, that was always their stated goal. And uh, maybe... Let's say in the early fall, it, it might have seemed out of reach, but all of a sudden there were a lot of indicators, polls that we saw, and even public polls, and I'm sure that they saw, that suggested that many of our Republican candidates were, were pretty vulnerable. And um, they were able to raise a huge amount of money uh, sometime probably, I was going to guess, in late September. Uh, but then they started putting it on the air, mostly on TV in early October. And we saw literally tens of millions of dollars of ads being added uh, to their TV buys every day, not every wow. week, every day. And um, that was uh, not surprisingly astonishing yeah. and, and frightening <laughs> to us because, you know, not the TV advertising is everything, but weight of message can have a decisive impact on how voters conclude near the end of the election. <clears throat> uh, we pay a lot of attention to what other players in the market are doing. We watched other people's buys. We watched other people's cash on hand. And as we looked at, for example, uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, as we looked at some of our other players, it was clear to us that nobody had the resources at that moment uh, to, to be an effective counter. And so we went to our donors. We said, we thank you for every bit of support you've given. We need more. <laughs> and, uh, and to our uh, happy surprise, uh, there was a tremendous response in, in the space of, I think, in about four or five days, we raised $37 million wow. of additional capital on top of everything else we were doing. And we were able to invest it in places where we felt we had the best opportunity to win um, and even one or two places where we weren't sure we had the opportunity to win, but we wanted to prosecute the program and, and give our candidates the best possible support they could. And, um, and it ended up working out. So, And how does that work from, from your perspective? You know, you're looking at a race in Pennsylvania, let's say, very tight race. It could go either way. And you're like, I have this $37 million. I want to give, you know, five, six million of that treasured pot in this race that I have no idea how it's going to work out. Yeah, it's it's a, a it's a real gut check process, and it and it happens uh, it, near the end uh, in every single election cycle. Near the end, it's it, it really is a day by day 
uh, decision that you make. I mean, you, you don't, the $37 million doesn't arrive in a single check right. on one day. We would be happy for that. <laughs> if anybody's listening, <laughs> yes, yeah, right. <laughs> if anybody's listening could do that, I'd, I'd be very receptive. But, but in, in, in fact, I think, um, you get it, you know, you sort of get your day's haul, you get, or you get commitments, you know what's coming in, and, and then day by day you're making fresh commitments about what else to do. And typically what you're looking at is, do you add another, uh, an additional week of television? You know, most of our buys, as I recall, that year, um, ended uh, a week out before the election. So do you fill in that last week, even though, you know, by that point, a lot of people have already made decisions or there's a tremendous amount of clutter. Do you add that last week in or do you add on to your current buy in a certain place or do we uh, issue, do we do another new wave of, of digital ads? You know, when you're too close to the election, it's hard to get mail out the door, but mm-hmm. but there, there are a lot of different options you can do, a lot of different races you can invest in. We look at the day's polls, you know, what do we think? So it's, it's a highly... A lot of judgment that, that comes into play uh, right near the air and there with a lot of different variables. And you're just trying to sort through, trying to sift through a lot of data and decisions. And uh, that's why I'm grateful we have such a good team that kind of uh, compartmentalizes those, figures out what makes the most sense. And then, but, but so much of it really at that point really is a gut check. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's Politico's As Real People comes to us from none other than Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, um, who had some special news to share uh, on Twitter this past week. Um, I'll read her, her little caption here. It's Duck, 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 Duckling. Um, yes, Senator Tammy Duckworth um, announced her pregnancy. I think she's due later in the spring, um, which is very exciting. So big congratulations to her and her family. Um, it's really actually exciting because she is the first sitting senator uh, who will be getting birth. So we're going to get into our final few sort of fun segments at this point. Um, the first of which is our hot take. So how this segment works is we asked uh, a student counterpart a question, had her respond. Um, we're going to play, we'll tell you the question, we'll play her response, and then we'll give you a few minutes to respond as well. Okay. Good. So the question that Anna Landry, uh, a freshman here uh, at Georgetown, answered was, does the internet's ability to boost grassroots fundraising undermine the role of PACs? No, at least not to a tangible degree. The people attracted by grassroots funding are typically everyday Americans who will be donating modest amounts to political campaigns, whereas PACs take donations from large corporations in greater sums. And as most of us know, although PACs can't technically back a particular candidate, backing a particular issue can amount to almost the same thing. So while the power of the internet, particularly social media, may increase the number of everyday Americans donating to local and national campaigns, these instances likely won't come close to the sums contribu- contributed to PACs by larger companies. In fact, there has even been record of PACs turning to social media to expand their reach. In one case, a right-wing super PAC during the Obama administration purchased ads on Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other sites to promote their policy agenda. This is certainly true of Democratic PACs, too, although they've been historically less successful in raising money than their conservative counterparts. Basically, it seems like the rise of the internet may begin to make online ads just as trendy as TV ads when it comes to political campaigning. So although the internet may be great for grassroots fundraising, for now at least, the influence of PACs isn't going anywhere. All right, Stephen, what's your take? You know, I think that's that's right. Uh, I mean, I do think that one of the most exciting 
developments in, uh, in, in democracy today is the rise of internet fundraising. For this reason, I think when people give, they're more likely to pay attention, they're more likely to feel like they're uh, involved. And uh, one of the other dimensions of internet fundraising is that it has really lowered the average age of people who contribute, mm-hmm. which, which is really important. And I think, you know, the, the first, actually the first burst of fundraising uh, on the internet, uh, you think would be President Obama, it was actually John McCain. Uh, back in 2000, for whatever reason, he was uh, kind of, he had a persona that grabbed people's attention. The internet was just getting going, and so people uh, contributed uh, via the internet to his campaign. President Obama, I think, set you know, new standards uh, for that, and as I said, kind of attracted uh, a lower demographic to give, which again I think helps uh, encourage uh, political involvement, and uh, all of that I think is, is a very good thing. Doesn't impact us much. Uh, I don't know about other groups, as, as the respondent <clears throat> noted. There are some groups that that do raise money, lower dollar money through internet fundraising. We do not, and part of that is really a matter of policy. When we got started, we decided. We didn't want to compete financially mm-hmm. with the party committees. We felt it was important. We, we believe the party committees are the, are the first front line of, of engagement with candidates. We didn't want to take money away from them. And so we, we didn't, we don't, I mean, it's not like we would refuse a contribution <laughs> of any denomination, but uh, you know, we, we didn't actively didn't go out and solicit money that would naturally be at a level and from a donor that would go to a party. And so we don't do uh, internet-based fundraising uh, looking for low-dollar uh, donors. Other super PACs, do and I think it's you know not, not anything wrong with that, but I think uh, I think she's right. I mean, most super PACs, uh, you know, par- part of the design that 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 makes us um, unique is is the ability to just raise money in, in very much larger chunks. And a plus side of that, at least for us, is that it, it actually reduces the cost of fundraising. You know, one mm-hmm. of the challenges you have. I used to run a party committee. The cost of fundraising can be fifty to seventy percent. It's astonishing how expensive it is, particularly when you're doing old line letters. I mean that that is very very expensive. But but even even if you're doing internet fundraising, the, the cost of transmission isn't expensive. But list rentals and managing the program uh, can consume a lot of resources. So it's not it's not free money, um, but but it is an amazingly uh, effective tool. And I do think that actually I, the one part I disagree with the respondent is that I mean I do think that Democrats have been better at developing that resource than Republicans. And one big reason for it is they got a huge kickstart with uh, President Obama and what he was able to do. Sure. So now we're going to move into our very uh, last fun segment called the lightning round. So basically, we're going to ask you a couple questions um, and just the first quick answer that comes to mind. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's favorite. Um, all right. First one, most, most vulnerable Senate Democrat up for re-election in 2018. I think it's Claire McCaskill, and I say it for this reason. Uh, McCaskill is a uh, politician not to be underestimated. She's tough. She's a smash-mouth politician. She's shrewd. She's run smart campaigns, and she's demonized her opponents. So I think she's a a very worthy opponent. But I think what we have here is an unusually strong uh, Republican candidate who's already out, our likely nominee, uh, the state attorney general, Josh Hawley, who I think is, is a real rock star and a rising star inside the party. Uh, we're very excited to be uh, uh, helping him. But so it's, it's, it's really more than anything else that the strength of our candidate, uh, the, the, the kind of Republican constitution of the state uh, and the vulnerabilities of Claire McCaskill. But I don't think by any means this is going to be an easy race. I got that one wrong. I thought it was going to be Joe Donnelly. <laughs> so full transparency, we started a new thing um, with the team this year. We do picks. So um, each 
each guest, we uh, pick one of the lightning round questions, and then we each guess what your answer is going to be. Oh, that's great. We're keeping okay. score. Um, neither of us got Clem McCaskill on that one, though. Um, second lightning round question. Is there a pack on the left that rivals the Senate Leadership Fund, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's the Senate Majority Fund, which uh, was started by Harry Reid, very well funded and, and run by his, uh, uh, his team. Uh, I think um, they have been more successful at raising resources. That sort of trailed off as, as uh, Harry Reid had, headed towards the uh, exits. But uh, Chuck Schumer is a great fundraiser, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they're well funded. Awesome. And number three, who is the young elected Republican you're most excited about for the future? Boy, I like all of my class of 2019 guys. I mean, <laughs> Didn't mean to put you in the spot. No, I'll, 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 I'll try to pick out one. I mean, I, I think uh, I personally wrote checks to, to all of them, which just uh, uh, just shows how much I cared about them all, and I think they're, they're great folks. Um, uh, I, I will say um, Dan Sullivan, just in part because he's uh, someone who doesn't stick out as much, but, but he is really learning the ropes of the Senate. He's a, a born legislator. He loves the process. He loves policy. He's so likable that, that nobody can resist him. And I think he's kind of one of those guys. And, and, and he's able to kind of pursue his agenda without looking like he's ambitious, which is a real art inside the Senate. And I think he's a guy we're going to hear a lot more from. Awesome. And one last thing before we let you go, you are a fellow here at GU Politics this semester. So just wanted to give you a minute to pitch your discussion group. Yes, thank you so much. Well, I've been in politics now for 30 years. That's a long time. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for me to step back and say, is it working? There are certain aspects of our democracy that concern me. Uh, I don't think we should take democracy for granted. And there are aspects, I think, of our democratic system that, that aren't functioning the way they should. And uh, I, I hope people will come. I, I sort of see this as a, a seminar to save democracy, and I hope people will show up, get embroiled in the issues, <clears throat> think through it all. I'd love everyone to come out of this being an evangelist for democracy and for politics and politicians, because I think they all matter. Is it day and time? Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Mondays, Mondays at 4 to 5.30, we will have food uh, and we'll have a lot of fun. Great. There you go. You heard it. Mondays. Um, in the afternoon, make sure to stop by. Uh, Stephen, really appreciated your time, um, your insight on a lot of really interesting things that we don't always get on the podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. Great to be here. Hope everyone enjoyed the interview with Stephen Law. I thought he had some great insights uh, into not only working on the Hill and advising Senator McConnell uh, for many years, but also on the campaign side of it. Um, has a ton of experience, obviously. So we promised you in the intro that we would be giving you the results of our political picks uh, for the week. And the question, of course, was who is the most vulnerable Senate Democrat up for re-election in 2018? Uh, Stephen's guess was, as you heard, Senator Claire McCaskill um, of Missouri. And the one fly-on-the-wall team member who got that right was Abby. So Abby's now got one point on all of us. Um, my guess was Senator Joe Donnelly of Indiana. Uh, Kendall had John Tester of Montana. Christian Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. Justin Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. And Aaron had Joe Manchin of West Virginia. So obviously lots of Democrats up in red states, but looks like Abby pulled through um, with the guess of the expert. Really thought I had a good one there. Disappointed in that. Yeah. Um, we really appreciated talking to Stephen. Definitely, definitely, definitely check out his uh, weekly discussion groups here uh, in the geopolitics office. We cannot endorse that more. It's going to be an exciting time. And he's really excited to, to be chatting with you guys as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, wrapping up then, as always, follow our social media at Fly on the Wall Podcast. Special birthday shout out to co-host Christian Mesa, uh, who was off this week. Um, his birthday was last Friday. 
Um, and other than that, have a great week, guys. Enjoy the State of the Union this week. Uh, there's some great events coming up at GU Politics as well. Senator Jeff Flake will be here on Monday. Um, check that out. Check back in with us next Sunday. We'll see you later. Okay, so I don't talk about this a lot on the actual pod, but I am loving this new segment wheel. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm just really happy yeah. we got the sound effect, so that Aaron we... doesn't have to like add it in later. Yeah, that's right. a fun fact. This is a sneak peek for our listeners who are actually sold. So should we yeah. tell them like the ones that we're picking from every time? Yeah, do we not? All right. Yeah, I don't, did we ever say like the actual full six segments on the podcast? Did we complete yeah. that I don't think we did. So um, for those curious, uh, every time we spin the wheel, we pick two per episode. Um, but it's coming out of uh, six uh, random ones. So we have in or out. Um, which we did today. Would you rather? Um, also did today. Oh wait, JK, we didn't do interrupt today, did we? No. No, we did. Would you rather today? We got some great ones. Yeah. Um, we did grind our gears today. That's number three. Uh, then we got. Did you see that? So there's a big news story of the week that might have flown under the radar. Um, who said that? Where uh, we haven't done this one yet, but we'll basically pull a quote uh, from someone and guess who said it. And finally, over or under? What's your new fun one? Right. Sounds a little bit like sports betting. And no matter what you hear, these are actually randomized. We spin a wheel and we get these, and Alec and I, or whoever's hosting that week, does not know what the question will be. Right. So, it's fun. Keeps us on our toes. Yeah. So, hope you're enjoying this new segment. Have a good weekend. (laughs) A week.